Good morning and evening, Viv McWaters. Welcome to uh, to this podcast. Hello, Jesse. Welcome, um, welcome to Australia, even <laughs> if it is just virtually. <laughs> I feel at home already, especially when I hear your accent. I used to live in Australia when I was 19, so it brings back some uh, good memories, nostalgia. Well, it's time for another trip to Australia then. Yeah, I feel so. I definitely feel this. <laughs> Where are you based in Australia? Where are you calling in from? I'm calling in from Bells Beach. And uh, for anybody who is a surfing enthusiast, <laughs> the World Surfing Tour Rip Curl Pro is happening as we speak. Wow. About 500 meters away from where my office is. Um, it's a world famous Bells Beach and we're on the Southern Ocean facing Antarctica. So we're a long way from the Netherlands. Wow. Wow. Like the other side of the world, right? <laughs> Literally. Right. Yes. <laughs> so for people that... Um, I've never met you. I would love to introduce you a bit. Uh, you're a facilitator and trainer, connector of people and ideas, based in uh, Melbourne, but you work as I've known you, um, know, yeah, known you by uh, joining this beautiful workshop you did about facilitation skills in Amsterdam. I know you work globally. Is that, uh, is that correct? Or could you elaborate on that a little bit? Yes, um, I do work globally. Uh, I have a business partner who is based in the UK, Johnny Moore. Mm -hmm. So we co-founded a business called Creative Facilitation. And while he does creative facilitation out of the UK, I offer creative facilitation out of Australia, mm -hmm. which has meant that I've done quite a lot of work um, in Southeast Asia and in the Pacific so I've been lucky enough to travel to lots of different countries, uh, helping people with their facilitation skills, their meeting skills and their leadership development. Wow, beautiful. So these three, three things, do you combine them or are they really separate niches for you? Facilitation, meeting and leadership development. Well, I think that they overlap a great deal. Mm -hmm. One of the things that uh, emerges from training people in particular to have more engaging meetings is that I believe if you can change your meetings, you can change the culture of your organisation because often the way that people meet in organisations or in businesses reflects very much how the organisation itself runs. So if your meetings are very hierarchical and tedious and boring and not very creative, then that flows into the way that people work in the organisation as well. So one of the easiest ways to start to change a culture of an organisation is through the way that you have your meetings. Definitely. So I look at different approaches to engaging people in meetings, both with each other and with the content and the purpose of the meeting. Mm -hmm. And I think that links to leadership because somebody has to take leadership to change the meetings. It's easy for people to grumble and moan about bad meetings. It takes something else mm -hmm. to actually take a step and say, let's try something different. So there's a bit of courage and responsibility and creativity 
that goes in changing meetings and I think that's the the leadership angle that interests me a lot. Yeah. And I also believe um, that also requires some uh, reflection abilities, right? That you can kind of step out of the, the content and the meeting and the dynamics and see what the scene needs, as they say in improv theater. Yeah, exactly. So I've been facilitating now for over 20 years. And when I first started facilitating, I had no awareness or involvement in improv theatre. And it was through playback theatre here in Melbourne and Melbourne Playback Theatre Company that I was introduced to improvisation. And then it was through the Applied Improvisation Network that I started to build my knowledge and skills of how improvisation can be a really useful tool for anyone who's working in an organisation in a situation where things are uncertain and isn't that just about everywhere these days mm -hmm. and also um, to help build those skills of being more spontaneous and as you say being more reflective and actually noticing what's going on in a group Mm -hmm. I've seen a lot of people work with groups and run meetings where they just don't notice that people are reacting in a certain way and are not responding to that reaction. So one of the really simple skills is is that capacity to notice how people are reacting, mm -hmm. um, to, to bring that to everyone else's attention and to say, well, as a group, what can we do about that? If everyone's on their devices and is sending emails rather than participating in the meeting, how can we change the meeting to make it more effective for everybody? Yeah, and share that responsibility and not only the chairman uh, that has to uh, deal with those questions. Yeah, exactly. So th that's where it links again to leadership because it's about you know having some skin in the game, having some um, you know being part of the group but also taking responsibility to step away from the group and notice how the group is responding and take some responsibility for suggesting an alternative way of doing that. And that doesn't necessarily need to be the designated leader, the, the chairman of the meeting or the mm -hmm. um, director who's, who, you know, of the team or the team leader. It can be anybody. That leadership can come from anywhere within the group. And I think that's something that I'm really interested in um, developing amongst groups is that capacity to have that shared leadership. Yeah, and people feel encouraged to show that in, in a, of course, the most effective and constructive way. Um, and that even the maybe the director, the formal director, as I often call it, can champion that and can be helped by others. Yeah, and I think that as a designated leader, when you've been given that um, rank within a hierarchy mm -hmm. and people see you as a leader, you can also demonstrate leadership by stepping away from being the leader mm -hmm. and allowing other people to lead when it's appropriate. So you don't always have to be in that um, leadership role. You can step back from it. And I think that's part of building people's capacity and developing others and allowing others to grow in your presence. And we all prefer leaders like that rather than leaders who 
squash our capacity to develop and always want to be in the limelight. Yeah, very tiring too <laughs> to be in that yes. space, I think. Yeah, I, yeah I, I think if we recall our jobs from the past or maybe even university or school, there was always people that were kind of having this top-down approach of leadership, if I call, call mm. it like that. But I'm not sure if they were so comfortable and happy and open and I don't know. So I think, it's, <laughs> yeah, I, I really wonder who does want to have this kind of leadership indeed. And I think it comes back to one of the reasons why organizations often have bad meetings. It's not because people plan to have bad meetings. It's simply that they don't know anything different. Exactly. Yeah. So, And if your experience of leadership is only one style of leadership that you have to take all of the responsibility, make the decisions and lead from the front, then that's all the type of leadership that you know. So I think there's a lot of work that I, I know that you're doing this type of work as well in helping people to experience different ways of being with each other, whether that be in a meeting or in a leadership role or in a work team whatever it might be, whatever their job might be, so that they're able to experience different ways of doing their work that keeps them interested and engaged, engages others and builds on the innate creativity that we all have. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a really you know, exciting thing to see um, in organisations. Yeah. There's there's one organisation here in Australia that I've been working with that's made up of road engineers. And road engineers um, are a particular type of engineer. They, they're very specific in the type of work they do. Um, they're experts in, in their work. Mm -hmm. And they have to have a lot of meetings with different players and stakeholders because roads is not something that are built and are operated in isolation. There's lots of users of roads. There's drivers, there's cyclists, there's walkers, um, there's people who use roads to transport freight and, and goods and services. So there's lots of people who are interested in the quality of roads. And although these people are very good at understanding road engineering, Um, they don't necessarily know how to engage with others who have also yeah. got an interest. Yeah. And the work that I've been doing with them has, has opened up um, some of those different ways. So it's not necessarily saying this is how you have to do it, but mm -hmm. it's saying, look, here's, here's one colour that you've been using. Mm -hmm. Over here there's a whole palette of other colours that you could also use. Yeah. Choose from those and use some of those that's appropriate. And that's been really exciting to watch people, you know, using different ways of, of meeting and engaging with their clients. Yeah, beautiful example. Yeah, I'm, I'm always so stunned by, well, almost the fact that it could be in the matter of asking power questions or uh, the way you leave the floor, you keep a silence that can turn the whole meeting and also the outcome or a workshop around. Um, I often call it human-centered process innovation tools, which is kind of a jargon word. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, how, how do you describe that, that kind of 
new tool that people can use and that resonates with them? Do you have any way yeah, to describe I th- that? I think the way I describe it is that you don't have to throw out everything that you're doing and start again from scratch. It's about making a small tilt because mm-hmm. often it's the smallest of changes that can have the biggest of impacts. Mm-hmm. And one of one of the ways I describe this is one of the things I like to do as um, a mindfulness practice is a thing called rock balancing. Mm-hmm. And if you've never seen rock balancing, um, Google it and, and have a look at some YouTube videos of people doing rock balancing. Mm-hmm. And what you do is you get quite a large rock and, and you take the narrowest or skinniest point of that rock and try and balance it on another rock. And so it's not an easy thing to do. You have to actually feel for the moment when you have achieved that balance. Mm-hmm. And it it doesn't come quickly. You have to have patience and you have to feel, you have to use all of your senses, not just looking at what's happening but feeling with your fingers and and just knowing when that moment has come when you've got that balance. And often that moment of balance comes from a very, very slight change at, you know, at, at the very last moment. Mm-hmm. And so the same thing can happen in organisations. And one of the things I always suggest to clients and and to people who are having trouble engaging with others or their meetings are not as productive as they'd like them to be is a simple thing to take away the tables. Hmm, Because what happens, you know, people come into a meeting and they sit down at a table and they haven't, because a table is a normal part of a meeting procedure, it then sets up a whole chain of expectations that the meeting will be this particular way. If you take the tables away, even if you just push them to the side of the room and, and, and have the chairs sitting in a, in a horseshoe shape, it, it immediately changes the expectation of the meeting and the dynamics of the meeting. And you don't need to do anything else. You don't need to change the agenda. You don't need to change anything else about the meeting. And it will affect the quality of the meeting. And from there you can go, well, what if we also change this part? So yes. I always say don't, don't try and throw everything out and you know start with a blank sheet of paper and start mm. from scratch. Use what you already have. And make a small change and, and notice what difference that makes to the um, relationships of the people in the room because basically that's what it's all about is, is our relationships with each other yeah. and, and how we can work with each other. Yeah, so what you say, uh, all the, the, um, the tools and the approaches you provide, uh, you wrote a beautiful e-reader, by the way, I'm still using it, the uh, curative <laughs> facilitation skills, do I say it correctly? Yep. Yes, that's correct. Yeah, yep. uh, so it's kind of, those skills are really a means to an end. It's not like uh, use this, throw away everything out of the window. And, and, and because you see, I see that happening too when there's workshops. Um, and people really focus more on the post-its than <laughs> yeah, yes. on the dynamics again. So it's af- actually shifting the challenge or the problem, if I can say, for not engaging yeah. is shifting to focus on what color uh, flip over you have to use more or less. So did you, did you 
Did you see that happening too? That now people do apply these things, but now they're more focused on on on, on those other things that distracts actually the yeah the basic element of getting better output by engaging everyone instead of just focusing on those things. Yeah, I think there's uh, still quite a lot of people who think if they can just find the right tool or the right process or the right framework, then everything else will be okay. Mm-hmm. But my experience has always been that you know it, it, it doesn't matter what tool or what process or what framework or, or anything else yes. that you're using. If you don't notice and work with the people who are in the room, mm-hmm. you still can't get the best out of, of having those people together. And the world has changed dramatically from when I first started facilitating because now everybody has devices, everybody has access to the internet, certainly mm-hmm. in you know high-income countries. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there, there's... There's a much greater capacity to share information electronically. So if you are going to bring people together face to face, whether that's from across the world for a large humanitarian meeting or from down the corridor in your office, mm-hmm. you need to have a reason for actually bringing people together that is beyond what you can do electronically. You need to do something together face-to-face that you can't do um, over the internet or through email or through sharing documents. Mm. And I think that being, being aware of the capacity of people to interact and the richness of conversations that can emerge from that interaction mm-hmm. is part of where we're shifting to, where we're uh, looking at what Johnny calls unhurried conversations. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's not really the slow movement. It's more about let's take an unhurried approach to this. And so much of our business these days is rush, rush, rush. And, yeah. you know, every, everybody's busy and they've got to get things done and then they've got to get home to feed the kids and mm-hmm. they've got to go to their gym class and, you know, and everybody's sort of got a lot happening. So if, if we can just take some time in our meetings and interactions with each other mm-hmm. to be more unhurried, and that means operating at the pace that is necessary. So it doesn't mean doing things slowly, but it means taking notice of the quality of the interaction and what people are actually saying and what they're not saying and what else we can do as facilitators or as leaders or as managers yeah. to encourage people to participate in a more whole way. Yeah, I love the way you uh, you put that, and, and you and Johnny in this case. Yes. Um, and that also brings me to, you, you mentioned before, inner creativity of, of people, and we all have it. Is this yes. also creating the space for people to... Uh, to to let emerging knowledge or insights uh, pop up and to be shared. Um, mm. What do you mean yeah. with creativity? And and yeah, can you explain a little bit about that? So we're um, both Johnny and I are very much influenced by a colleague in um, who's based in the United States in New York called Kathy Sallett. And Kathy has got a book coming out um, very soon around 
performance and the role the role of performing into new behaviors mm-hmm. so in the past there was a lot of um, a lot of talk about finding your authentic self and mm-hmm. you know who who is the authentic person that you're bringing to work and what we've have learned from Kathy and the work that she's been doing with people and her company is called performance of a lifetime so I'd encourage anyone who's listening to to have a look at her website and and some of the work that she's doing Mm -hmm. um what she does is enable people to uh, act their way into different roles so sometimes as leaders or sometimes as team members in organizations we need to behave in ways that are unfamiliar to us Mm -hmm. we might be an introvert and we might have to speak up um, Mm -hmm. in a meeting in in a way that is not natural for us. Mm -hmm. But we can learn those behaviours. We can learn to be a social extrovert. We can, and and some of the work that Johnny and I have been doing with groups is giving them an opportunity to try on some of these different behaviours, to try different ways Mm -hmm. of reacting especially in those situations where there might be a a difficult or a challenging conversation or situation. Mm -hmm. And we we do very rapid prototyping, experimenting with different responses. And so that's part of the approach that we take for people to have that aha moment where they go, I didn't Mm -hmm. realise that I could actually do that. And I think that's part of unearthing creativity as well it's not about getting a longer brainstorm list it's not about having more sticky notes on the wall it's Mm -hmm. about people actually believing that they are creative and having the opportunity to just pretend to be creative even if Mm -hmm. they don't believe it and see what happens Mm -hmm. and and if we can get people to that position um, often they have that a heart moment or that um, you know the light bulb goes on and mm-hmm. and they see that they can put on different um, roles for mm-hmm. different situations. Yeah, that can change their whole life around. What even goes beyond the organizational walls, I guess. Yeah, well, it's it. I think that a lot of these skills that we're working with in organisations with people transfer out of organisations because they're all people skills. So it mm-hmm. doesn't matter whether you're, you know, dealing with um, teenage children or family members or the local um, football team and, you know, or you're on a committee for, you know, the local play group or whatever it might be, there's always people involved and these skills can be applicable in any of those situations yeah and i also find that that's that for me that's one of the reasons why this work is so appealing that uh yeah it transforms people and maybe even teams and organizations and if you look at from the macro perspective even most possibly societies as well if people learn to behave differently with with one and the other and um that also brings me to the question: Like, wh- what is your story, Viv? How did you how did you get involved in this work? Why do you do what you do? 
Um, I, I started my career in agricultural science as a journalist, so mm-hmm. as an agricultural journalist, mm-hmm. and I was always interested in rural communities and, you know, the glue that keeps communities together. And here in Australia, you know, farming and agriculture is, is a very big part of our culture and our life and our economy. Mm-hmm. Um, and and from there I became involved in community education and community development around agriculture and discovered skills in facilitating groups and getting people working together. One of the interesting things about farmers is, is they often choose farming as a lifestyle because they like the independence, they like the autonomy, Mm-hmm. They like their capacity to make their own decisions. They like working on their own. And then it be, you know, as the world moves on and, and things become more difficult and challenging, there's a need for farmers to actually work together and you know, to take part in community development activities, if you like. Mm-hmm. And the role of facilitators and leaders in that is is showing that it's possible to still remain your own person but still but also be a part of a wider movement if you like and I think this is what really interests me in this type of work and and why I eventually started my own business doing facilitation and training initially in agriculture and conservation and then moving to the humanitarian sector and and corporate and government Mm -hmm. was because I could see um, that changes in individuals and the way that people work as an individual or in small teams can then translate and affect how others work and, and you can have that sort of branching effect. Mm-hmm. I sometimes talk about it as fractals. So if you're um, fractals are those things that occur in nature that are um, naturally repetitive. So if you look at a, the structure of the vein, the veins on a leaf, mm-hmm. you will see that they are fractal in nature. So the, the very smallest pattern is mm. repeated in the larger patterns. And, and that occurs time and time again in nature. If you look at the, um, uh, the, coast, the coastline and deltas, you'll see, you know, fractals recurring all the time. And I think the same is true of human behaviour is that we're fractal in the way that we behave and it's what I was referring to earlier when I said that in organisations our meetings can often reflect the whole organisation and I think working with individuals or with teams and helping them experience different ways of operating Mm -hmm. can also be a way of influencing the bigger picture without trying to actually change the world in one foul swoop (laughs) yeah beautifully put yeah if we only could huh well would make life maybe less interesting if we could just you know push a button and then things change around yes so yeah beautifully how you say this i think this is also how i see a transformation process um occurring like it's a it's a longer process it's constant uh it's constant change um and things can be repetitive so 
there's new norms and values created. Is, is that also what you mean? So there's a shift in the way we treat people, ourselves, and things we build things around our communities? Yeah, and I think one of the one of my beliefs about transformation is that when transformation happens, uh, everything is the same, but everything is different. So what I mean by that is when transformation, the context in which you're operi- operating remains the same. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the, the organisation you're in is still the same organisation. The people you're working with are the same people. The challenges you have are the same challenges. What happens in transformation is my um, relationship with all of that. Mm-hmm. And if my relationship, if I can change my relationship to the challenges and the and and whatever it is that I need to be doing, mm-hmm. then transformation has happened, and it may not be visible, but it it will become apparent in um, in the way that I relate to those challenges, to those situations, to the creativity I need to draw on, to the people I work with, um, and. And that's the way that we move forward, not by getting stuck in mm-hmm. I can't do anything about this because it's all too hard or it's too difficult. And there are days when it's like that, but it's, it's, it is about my relationship with those circumstances and how I can respond to that mm-hmm. in a different way. So in that sense, every individual carries uh, some responsibility wherever you are, which, whatever function or role in an organization. We're all part of, of something bigger and we can all have this wrinkle effect, if I say correctly, um, in our own space. Yes, I think so. I think it's, it's, it's something that I think you and I are, are doing work in and other people that we know are, are encouraging people to see that and I think it's sad that some people don't see that they can have that sort of influence they Mm. only see that that comes from a traditional leadership role whereas I think all of us have the capacity to to make some shift some transformation in our relationship to our work and our relationship to other people um, that can benefit both our day-to-day work and then have Mm. flow-on effects to the organisation, the community, the society, the world in general. So you, we can save the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> definitely. So if are you familiar with the work from, uh, from example, ULAB, uh, Theory U? Yes, I am. Yeah. So they talk about the ecological uh, divide, social divide, spiritual divide with the self, 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 other and self and nature. So they mm-hmm. they also talk about these layers of uh, of of transformation and things are yeah like you mentioned before there's huge uh, changes going on uh, radical changes and how do you see that occur and and people becoming more conscious of that maybe within organizations of people starting their own business is there really a collective consciousness that is provoked by yeah, by the way we are doing our work, is 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 this really happening, or is it just? Are we not there yet at all? Um, I really don't know the answer to that. What I do know is that 
the way to influence other people and for other people to influence other people is not by what we say or what we write or what we think but how we act mm. and i think that you know all all of the other stuff is is part of our own development and growth and learning mm. and so i for example use my blog as a way of sort of capturing my thoughts and and trying to you know to articulate my thinking at any particular time but i don't think it's what really influences people i think what influences people is is when there's an opportunity to interact face to face and to see different ways of of acting yeah. um, what we sometimes call acting our way into a new way of thinking rather than thinking our way into a new way of acting yeah exactly and, you know i, I so i don't i don't really know whether it's working or it's happening in in different fields but you know we can only do what we do in our own sphere of influence and hope that that's enough to then sort of start that ripple effect that you mentioned earlier mm -hmm. beautiful and what about your experience in the field i, I also get uh, the the idea and also based on on your linkedin profile and all that that you also you not only work in organizations you also do some community work is that correct do you work with with global organizations that are not yeah profit driven maybe or do yeah, you have social projects going on where you where you can use your yeah your great toolkit to uh to empower people yeah the um One of the most rewarding parts of my work is working with um, aid workers in the humanitarian sector. Mm -hmm. So in um, usually quite large not-for-profit organisations. Mm -hmm. um, but luckily I've been able to work with people in different countries and um, visit those countries uh, as an outsider and I recognise that I'm coming in as an outsider so I'm mm -hmm. not a part of that community. But what I can do is rather than build a dependence on my skills, I try and build the capacity of the people that I'm working with to also learn the skills that I'm using mm -hmm. so that when I'm not there, um, they can then apply those skills within the communities and situations that they face. Mm -hmm. And the most rewarding part of all of that has been some of the work I've done with people who are on call for disaster response. Uh -huh. so, so in Southeast Asia in particular, there's lots of earthquakes, um, mm -hmm. lots of earthquakes, lots of cyclones, lots of floods. Um, and and many of these are not devastating they that they will damage particular communities and and there's some cleanup and response required but every now and again there'll be a huge um disaster such as you know a very big earthquake that we had in nepal mm. a couple of years ago or the tsunami that was in um japan five years ago mm. the big tsunami in 2004 
uh, where, you know, whole countries and communities are devastated mm. and people are plucked out of their everyday jobs mm -hmm. from all over the world and dropped into these places to start the humanitarian process. And some of the work that I've been doing, introducing those people to facilitation skills and also applied improvisation, the way that they can use spontaneity and, and improvisation to use anything that's available to notice what's going on, to let go of any expectations they have. Yes. Uh, I have feedback that that, that sort of um, thinking and understanding even years after they've been exposed to it, comes into its own in those disaster, disaster response moments. And I find that wow. very rewarding. And um, That's great, amazing. Great, yeah. It is. Yeah, I, I also have one of the, um, the, the people that I've trained. He also works in the field of... Uh, of yeah disaster responsiveness and uh he's actually planning to train his colleagues at one of the ngos he's working at so i'm really happy that uh, that this really resonates these tools to yeah to be in the moment to be present and you can prepare yourself ahead with all this uh, scenario planning and what to do if e happens what you can do b but in yeah. the end, like you say, acting is, is, is the thing that changes us and often comes from a different space or different part, I should say, of our, of our bodies. And it's not the brain, the rational. It's something unconscious that we have inhibited, um, yeah, partially accidentally, partially by, uh, by, by our education, um, but also maybe partially because you got a, you got this thought by you, for example, at one of the or thought you got experienced uh, this way of, of, of acting in the moment. Mm. Yeah, I think it's easy to get stuck into an idea of who we are and who we ought to be. Mm -hmm. And so I think that what improvisation training does is allows us to experience different versions of ourselves. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Definitely, we can. We have the option to choose without yes. being schizophrenic. I mean, yes. exactly, exactly. <laughs> so uh, interesting. Do you think that this? I just call it toolkit, just to make it a little bit simple. Um, do you think it's universal that it has a universal impact? Or you? No. Let me put it this way: Can you apply it in a universal way? Does it go beyond the the limitations of of uh, the cultural divide, you know, that, for example, if I apply these skills in Australia, the, the impact will be way different than when I apply it in uh, in Asia. Is there is there a cultural uh, divide there? Or can you say, you know, everyone that use these facilitation skills, for example, or improvisation skills gets a better output always? I think one of the things that Johnny and I have tried to do with creative facilitation is make sure that they're human-centred. Mm -hmm. So as long as the people we're working with are human, mm -hmm. I think that they're effective. Yeah. So when it comes to culture, I've, I've worked in about 35 different cultural contexts mm -hmm. and I don't change the 
um, the types of work that I do or the 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 toolkit, if you like, mm-hmm. I'm conscious of the norms of the culture that I'm working in and, mm-hmm. and different cultures have different norms. Mm-hmm. But when it comes down to it, people are people and they respond in a human way and they all have the same human needs. And if one of those, if we recognise that one of those human needs is to connect with each other, to share stories, to... Mm-hmm. Um, to be responsive to each other, to, to notice each other, um, to be aware of what's going on in the room, then I believe that that works in any culture and mm. in any context. I've yet to find a situation where it doesn't work. Yeah. Yeah, maybe those those really um, um, special, <laughs> so to speak, contexts <laughs> that that is that doesn't feel human centered so where is dictatorship yeah. or when there's uh, hierarchy that is on un- has in- yeah inclines an unhealthy culture um, mm. but they will not allow to <laughs> to actually to for those skills to 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 be experimented with so yeah there you are yeah and i think that's one of the difficulties is some some groups that i've worked with come from very hierarchical cultures um, their organisations and their countries, especially in Southeast Asia, mm-hmm. are, are very hierarchy orientated. Mm-hmm. But I was amazed to hear a story from a woman in um, China who had learnt creative facilitation skills and that they had used some of these um, particular toolkit activities in meetings with the government in China. And this is probably one of the most um, hierarchical, controlled sort of situations when a a, a non-government NGO, a humanitarian organisation is meeting with the government to get permission to do certain work. Um, There's an expectation that there will be certain types of meetings Mm -hmm. and they actually just took the risk and tried a few of these um, skills and the feedback they got from the government representatives was that they learned more about the work the group was doing, they understood the work that they were doing um, and they actually enjoyed the meeting. So, you know, it's... And not everybody is going to have the courage to do that or Mm -hmm. or the opportunity to do that, but I always encourage anyone who does think that they would like to try something different to engage more with the either the content or the people that they're working with you know to try something small and see Mm. what the reaction is and generally you get a good reaction it's you might get surprise you Mm. might get you know what's going on here this is not what we expected but often you'll get um you know some satisfaction and and an enhanced outcome as well from engaging people more fully. Yeah, and that's kind of the the paradox, right? Where people want to manage expectations for the for the better good, in their opinion. Um, that's actually where where well, I call it we start to to make a difference because yeah, there are so much uncertainties. There's so many variables that can do either better or worse. And why not focusing uh, on them to create a space 
to unlock the potential of everyone and to yeah to be encouraged and have courage yourself to let go of that control of of getting the 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 performance indicators in place you know yes yeah it's easy to get stuck into that situation of um you know we're not allowed to change so we won't change anything so nothing ever changes exactly so that's paralyzation in itself yes and uh, going going back to uh, my uh, talking about the experience I had um, in uh, by your workshop, I think it's now four years ago. It was in Amsterdam in the Polana Theater, and yes. um, uh, I was also really triggered on in your own style of being a facilitator. And um, you know, I'm always like, okay, what kind of style do I have? Can I be can I be myself or do I have to get also all these different colors and roles in place or do I have to be really adaptive with the audience? And now I'm I'm, you know, I develop my skills and I feel more comfortable uh, you know, just by by realizing it's not about me. That helps me a lot, you know, if I feel a little bit nervous because I do not know the group or there might be senior top management people or I don't know, I feel slightly intimidated. Um, and after letting that go, it's not about me, but it's about them. And knowing that everyone is concerned about themselves, how they appear or how they look within a group, uh, that gives a lot of space and freedom again to to pick your role as a facilitator and not being... Um, carried away by your own fears or maybe insecurities or if you're a good facilitator or not. And I was actually really triggered by you saying about yourself, if I'm correct, that you are a warrior facilitator. Can you can you explain that a little bit, what you, what you mean by that? Yeah, I think there's, um, there's some archetypes of different types of facilitators and and some facilitators come from a teaching background and they're very much a teacher style of facilitator. Mm-hmm. Um, others like to fix things. They're problem solvers and, and they like to rescue the group from, you know, whatever is happening. Mm-hmm. And there's nothing wrong with either of those types of facilitation, mm-hmm. but it's it doesn't sit very well with me. So mm. the other form of facilitation is, is, as you said, warrior facilitation, which is basically about, you know, I guess throwing people into the deep end and then stepping back and letting them do their own struggle. Yeah. So not saving them from themselves, letting them work it out for themselves. And this is this is important to me when I'm facilitating because I believe that the group has the knowledge and the skills within themselves. Mm to do the work they need to do or solve whatever the problem is. I'm not coming in as a facilitator to to show them what they need to do or what the answers are or offer suggestions. Hmm. And so that that's really what I mean by a warrior facilitator is basically getting people to work, um, you know, setting up whatever it is that they have to do and then getting out of the way and letting them get on with it. Wow, yeah, that that requires quite some courage. I I I've experienced at least, uh, but now I also feel comfortable in in that role. 
Um, and I also believe that it helps, as I call it often, the integrative approach of yeah, applying facilitation skills in a workspace um, because people, um, yeah, they, they, they experience a personal transformation, even if it's small, and they take it with them. They integrate it because things changed because of a certain uh, conversation they had, which is not, again, from the from the head-head level, but maybe from the heart and the head and then the hands. And, and that makes uh, things stick and integrate in, in the way they behave and, and, and work together. Yeah, I, th I think that is so true. I was working just recently with a group of um, IT people in, you know, information technology um, they do very high-tech sort of work and it was on the topic was on uh, conflict at work and conflict with clients and that type of thing and partway through the day I played a um, an applied improv game with them which was about noticing and and being present and, you know, I was really nervous about how they would react to mm -hmm. this because it's not, it's not the type of training they usually get. They usually get the PowerPoint presentations and someone telling them what they need to do. Mm -hmm. and, and, and then we did some of the, the work that I've described about trying, trying different roles when, when responding in difficult situations. And in the feedback, they all said they wanted to do more of those games because they just brought home so clearly hmm. what sort of behaviours was required of them far more than any of the, you know, technical information or background reading or anything else. So it just reinforces that if you give people an opportunity to experience with their whole selves mm -hmm. what it feels like to actually notice or to recognise for themselves that when they're in a group situation, they're actually not noticing what's going on. Hmm. And when you're playing a game that has got no, you know, no, it's a silly, what I call a silly game. It, it's just a game. There's no, no reason for it, no consequences. Mm -hmm. The behaviours become what's noticed in the game because hmm. the game itself isn't that important. It, it's just a vehicle for people to notice their own behaviours and to try different behaviours. And the number of people in that group who said, I always thought that I was really observant and noticed what was going on and this game has showed me that I really don't. Hmm. I just thought I just thought that's what I was doing when in fact I'm not. Hmm. And so that that is a huge learning for people to take away from that experience and, and into their everyday work when they're you know, looking at systems and, and, you know, telco situations that are way beyond anything I could ever understand mm. um, and hopefully it will make them better at whatever it is that they do. That's, that's, that's so, that's such a beautiful example. Um, it also resonates with me in the terms of, of, you know, the whole concept of experiential learning and how people translate that again to their work experience or how they use it and apply it and i hear what you are saying is really uh, learn through reflection on doing and preferably with a group so you can also illuminate your your own blind spots 
uh, and hear stories of others, what they see, and and your own thinking is not, you know, fixed or the only truth, as might there's much not such thing as truth. But what I see happening is that, and I'm curious if you have the same experience, that people take experiential learning into the workspace as something they can control again. So what they do is that they give employees the free space to learn a new skill, whatever they like. But it's not about reflectivity on their behaviors and on their mindset even. Um, and that's sometimes, well, concerning is a big word, but it, it is it is appealing for me that people still um, are more uh, eager to to frame things again and, and, and talk about skills from from the more, yeah, how do I put it, in a more shallow way and not go deep. Uh, mm. And I'm not saying we should meditate all the time and do yoga together and all those things has to be integrated all the time. But just a simple game and, and or even a simple conversation where you talk about each other's behavior and reflect on that, that space is really rare and people cannot really grasp it or they don't know how to do it maybe. Yeah, I think that that's, that's really true in a lot of workplace training and skills development mm -hmm. is there's a real focus on, you know, what what are the specific skills that people are going to take away or what will people learn? Mm -hmm. And I'm, I'm always amused when I read, you know, learning outcomes from something and I, I, I usually go, really? <laughs> you, you, you really think that, you know, in a two-hour session, or a half-day or a one-day session, people are then going to come away with, they'll have an understanding of this and an awareness of that, and they might do, and that might be something to aspire to, but you can't, you, you can't predict exactly. what someone will get from that experience. Mm -hmm. And if you try and control it and make sure that that's what people get, I think you're setting yourself up for failure. Mm. And and you fall into into that trap of of getting stuck in in this is how training or this is how facilitation or this is how meetings happen mm. and or this is how it ought to be and if I do anything different I'm not doing it properly whereas what we're doing when we're in those stuck places is just being stuck. Mm -hmm. And and not providing an opportunity for people to have that that learning and that reflection. And as I said earlier, it's often something as simple as a small change. And mm -hmm. it could be to send people out of the room for ten minutes in pairs to have a walk and talk, exactly. and then come back. Yeah, you know, and it, and you know, there's there was just an article which came out this week. I was reading about. It's science has now proven that we can be more creative when we're actually walking mm -hmm. and, and being active and Definitely. and moving around and doing something else. So, you know, everybody has stories of when they were riding their bike and, you know, they had a flash of inspiration or they were swimming laps in the pool and mm -hmm. the solution to whatever problem was troubling them came to mind. And it's that sort of thing that I think we need to be able to build into organisations, not just sitting at desks and looking at screens and yeah. and grappling cognitively, Definitely. trying to think our way out of problems and into new solutions, but actually moving around and playing and 
using our hands and our bodies and yeah, you're yeah, abandoning the whole environment. <laughs> exactly, you're abandoning uh, you're abandoning that richness we have in ourselves. Um, maybe I read a similar article about new neuron paths being created when you walk and move and. Also, kids at schools, they should, uh, you know, learn by walking around the classroom. Um, and it's funny how that article was writing about children. And then I'm thinking, why is this so focused on children? This is, I think, yes. this counts yeah. for everyone, you know, walking. Exactly. <laughs> yes. Then it becomes a childish thing again, but it's not about that. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. So, yeah. So, in the end, it would be great to have people within organizations and societies and teams and you know in everyday life that are kind of accelerators of this of this new of creating this new kind of well environment where people can be choose to behave differently and try different things that are yeah that that empowers others i always say to really unlock the potential of others by asking a power question that is not uh, offensive or judgmental but just value free in a sense uh so people yeah people start to use their own capacity to come to new things new solutions new ideas um and yeah i also hope that we shift because now i see this experiential learning thing you know in 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 maybe you've read it too the 70 20 10 principle um again it's 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 they make graphs of it now how you can unlock experiential learning in organizations and then make it in turn it into percentages so 70 percent should be this 20 percent should be that mm -hmm. and i'm i'm stunned again like wow this is again we're trying to uh, rationalize things and um, frame them in a way so we can understand uh, but you, you cannot make it you cannot tweak those things into percentages like oh now for this day 70 percent of the time i will i will do this type of experiential learning yeah. um it's extraordinary how we try to uh, get certainty about things which are simply not certain <laughs> yeah and i think that's just a a human trait that we like you know we like to have certainty we like to know that we'll have a roof over our head and that we'll have where our next meal is coming from and mm -hmm. You know, we like to have safety. And I I think that has translated into organisations in a way that's not helpful, mm -hmm. just as you've described, that we try and try and um, shoehorn our experiences into in a way that we are clear about what's going to happen. And I notice this a lot in workshops when I'm working with people, um, that they'll, they'll ask, a lot of questions before we do an activity mm -hmm. and it, it's I, I now have this um, facilitator rule that I don't take questions before an activity and um, I have other facilitators look at me askance and say but that's not right you should you know be making the space safe and and ensuring that people know what's expected of them And I've discovered that people ask a lot of questions before they do any sort of activity to mitigate the risk of doing that activity, yeah. that they want to be sure of what the outcome is, that they're doing it properly, yeah. um, that they've got all the details. And before you know it, you've got into such an abstract headspace talking about the activity that you've actually <laughs> run out of time to do the activity. Exactly. So I now say 
that I will take any question anyone has got to ask after they've done the activity. Wow, that's and a great so, And so I just get them working straight away and if they're not sure of what they're supposed to be doing, they've got instructions, they're written up, hmm. um, they know what time they've got available, they know what the activity is in general terms mm-hmm. um, and, and I just get out of the way and let them get on with it. And invariably, by doing the activity, they answer their own questions. They work <laughs> it out themselves. They, they resolve. They're adults. They're intelligent. Yeah. They, they yeah. know how to survive in the world. Yes. So they're going to survive a game or an activity or something they don't understand. Yeah, I, yeah. This sometimes I call it also the the self fulfilling prophecy that kicks in that people, you know, if you ask them what do you what do you think the answer is for yourself, what what do you think, just you know, out loud, can you talk about it? And ninety percent of the time, they they have beautiful outcome uh, insights that I could have never thought of for them. You know, I'm like I'm so happy I asked it open question this open question yeah. instead of kind of framing it for them, which makes it super artificial. And nine out of ten times, I'm wrong. You know, I'm not even phrasing it the way they have experienced it themselves. So, uh, what's the whole point of that? Um, and that's another example of warrior facilitation hmm. of, you know, of, of putting the group in the situation or the participants in a situation where they have to work it out for yourself. You're not going to save them by giving them the answer hmm. or telling them how to do something. Yeah. And what, uh, just out of curiosity, maybe more specific question, but when you start a workshop, what are the... M- the 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 least context you will provide for them to feel comfortable enough to go along with you starting the exercise or whatever it might be is it like a tiny objective of one sentence like hey today you will learn more about facilitation skills or how would you kind of what is your insight yeah usually um i know that people have three particular needs when they walk into a group whether they know the group well or not mm-hmm. and that is to and that is for their identity to be recognized so mm-hmm. i want to be recognized as an individual in the group i don't want to be seen just as a group member mm-hmm. so i think it's important to um, know that each person in the group is an individual The other thing that people want to know, especially if it's um, not a group that meets often, is what are the connections in the group? Mm -hmm. So who knows who who and who is connected to who and who is this person up the front who is, you know, telling us what to do and where does she come from and how did she get here and all of that sort of thing. And the third thing is they want to get into action. Mm -hmm. So I nearly always do that simply by introducing myself in as short a time as possible. Yes. I often ask the host or the sponsor or the or the leader of the group to say a few words about why they've come together and why they've got me in and then to hand over to me. And then I will do some sociometry. So sociometry is simply an active process where individual choices within the group are um, physicalized so you actually move to a position in the room Hmm. and everybody can see everybody else's choices Mm -hmm. so within two or three questions or activities around sociometry i've been able to fulfill those requirements of people being identified as an individual 
of understanding the connections and of getting into action qu as quickly as possible. Nice. And I find if I do that, um, then the group is warmed up and ready to do whatever the whatever <laughs> whatever happens to come next. Yeah. Whereas if they have to sit through a a keynote speaker or a presenter or something else before I get a chance to work with them, mm -hmm. um, I find it then takes a while for them to to warm up to the process. Yeah, they are they are already in this uh, expectation pattern of okay let's have the new keynote and now something else is happening yes so you have yeah. to kind of uh turn their uh, expectations around yeah i often start in with some yeah like a simple check-in you know yep. power words around their own name something positive and moving around the space so i think i'm actually also taking all those boxes so that's nice to know great mm. <laughs> yes so um yeah i think uh, I, oh, I had one more question for you, and that is as a warrior facilitator, which sounds uh, <laughs> yeah, pretty convincing. Um, and I've noticed you as a yeah, as a as a very convincing facilitator in that sense that you are on your own. You're you isolate yourself in a natural way from the group, so we do stuff by ourselves. Meanwhile, you're super sensitive for what's going on so you're not shut off you know you're not like mm. reading a paper or something and let her yeah. you know going on their own um and what also struck me is that uh when a workshop or whatever you're doing session is going fine the work the the group is doing the work and you shouldn't feel exhausted as a facilitator that also really struck me. Like I notice, if I work very hard in a group and I feel like, wow, this is intense, I know that there I have to change things around a bit. I'm I'm doing the work, and they should do that themselves. You know, I shouldn't experience all this sentiments and all the, what's going on uh, in the group. They should go through that process. Um, so I was wondering, are, when you when you are in a serious situation with a workshop, when you feel uncomfortable for a certain reason because things do not really turn out as you might have expected, although you shouldn't have expectations maybe, but, you know, sure you have. What what do you do? Like, how do you turn that, or how do you pivot that for yourself? Uh, usually what I do is move to a different part of the room to give myself a different perspective and different point of view. Mm-hmm. So I, another reason why I don't use tables in a room mm -hmm. is because I can use the whole of the space. Yes. So one of the things I find is if a room is set up in a way that um, this is the front of the room and this is where I'm always standing and people are always sitting there, I can get into that stuck situation and I can find, you know, if things are not going well or I perceive that the group's not happy or not performing or, mm -hmm. you know, things are just not quite right. Mm -hmm. um, I notice that if I call a break, mm -hmm. um, don't panic, mm -hmm. breathe mm -hmm. and move to a different part of the room mm -hmm. and start afresh from another part of the room mm -hmm. and trust that whatever needs to happen comes to mind. 
Mm. Now, when I say that, I see some other facilitators look at me as though I'm quite crazy. <laughs> but it's, it's again, part of being the warrior facilitator and, and believing in yourself, knowing that you'll know what to do when the mm -hmm. moment arises. Yes. And in some cases, that means saying to the group, I don't know what to do next. What do you think we should do? Here you go. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, it, and usually the group goes, oh. <laughs> well, actually, well, actually, we were thinking that, you know, we were just talking in the break and we thought it would be really good to do such and such. Yeah. And, you know, you have to be aware of, you know, somebody not trying to, you know, having a hidden agenda or taking over. Mm. But if you've, built, if you've built trust with the group and they're aware of your role and you're aware of what their expectations are, you can then be honest enough with them to have that conversation mm -hmm. and to work through that difficult period together. Mm -hmm. um, and the worst thing you can do is to do nothing. So I usually just try something and usually it's something a bit out there like I'll play a game or an activity that I hadn't planned on doing mm -hmm. and just seeing what happens next. Yeah. Unfortunately, it's just a means to an end. So it's not like you determine uh, the outcome or something. You just, or you're just, it's not an easy thing to do, but you're facilitating the, the process, which uh, I think makes our work so interesting. <laughs> it's, yeah. uh, it's never the same. It's, it's never done. It, it keeps you sharp. When you think, wow, well, I'll speak for myself now. It, wow, this, this, this session was amazing and everyone was engaged and I got beautiful outcomes. So let's copy paste. And for mm. sure, <laughs> next yeah. week after, it will be different again. And maybe you have to move yourself around the room and call it a break and then ask people, okay, what to do next? Because people are in a different space. I also recognize when you provide sessions in the evening or in the afternoon, it's different again. Um, yeah, there might be someone that has personal issues. I had a, a man that once had an almost death experience on his bike when he was um, uh, joining the session on his way. And uh, mm. I was so glad that uh, or grateful that I did this extensive check-in where he actually had the space to say, okay, guys, I'm not really here. I just had a, you know, almost death experience and I have to really, uh, yeah, find my space again and uh, feeling grounded here. Um, and I didn't took it personal anymore from that moment on because I thought maybe his grumpy face is because he doesn't like the workshop or the setting or the way I look. Um, but again, it's not about you. It's about them. So. Exactly. And I, I think that's the real power of the work that we do is is being able to recognize that it is about them and that we're there just to facilitate mm -hmm. and and it's not about us and, you know, we just have to notice what's going on and respond just in the way that you said giving, you probably didn't know that that chap would need the space to actually be present because of his you know, near-death experience. But probably there was something something else told you that, that was an important thing to do and you know that giving people space um, is a way of helping them make that transition from whatever they've been doing before the workshop or the meeting 
into whatever work they then have to do. Yes, yes, beautiful, beautifully uh, summarized. Um, so, wow, we've been talking quite a while and I found it so interesting. Uh, I think we can go on for another, let's say, half a day. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> this is never ending, yeah, never ending conversations, fortunately. And I'm very grateful that you took the time and, uh, and effort to, uh, to join me on this podcast. And for people that are listening, I would really recommend to, uh, to download um, your beautiful e-reader about uh, creative facilitation skills by you and Johnny Moore. Um, and um, yeah, thank you so much for being here. Well, thank you for inviting me. I've, I've had a great time talking about facilitation. And um, I'll just say to everyone, go forth and facilitate. Yeah, unlock that leadership. <laughs> yes, and 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 start before you're ready. That's yes, the best, the best bit of advice I can give. If you wait until <laughs> you're ready, you'll never be ready. So now is as good a time as any. That's great, and it's also a beautiful metaphor for entrepreneurship. I think start when you're not ready, and you will you will you will move along for sure. Yes, you you will move into being ready. <laughs> exactly. Thank you so much for the beautiful punchline and uh, we speak soon. Thanks very much, Jessica. I've enjoyed it. Bye. Bye-bye.